Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Living Open podcast. Today's episode is with Shore Davidi, who uses she, her pronouns. She is a self-trust coach, writer, and the host of the Conjuring Up Courage podcast. She's dedicated to helping people move through self-doubt and shame so they can live their lives with intention and step into their motherfucking magic. She is an internet friend. She's been on the podcast before and is returning for a second episode. Our conversation is really about so many things that I really care about right now and I'm really passionate about. It's about being brave and trusting yourself and finding courage to do what feels scary and finding courage to be your authentic self and live your authentic life. I feel so inspired by Shore and there's a lot of overlap in our stories over the pandemic. So it was lovely to sit down with her and have this conversation and to record it for you. So we get into Shore's journey over the pandemic including grieving and navigating huge life transitions and changes. We talk about feeling fear and finding the courage to do the thing anyway, the three pillars of self-trust, which are a big part of Shori's work, stepping into courage practices, a reframe around the question that can haunt us (laughs) when we're trying to make a decision about something, which is, what if I'm wrong? We get into how exploring our own values and needs help us make tough choices, Shori's process of exploring her own values and needs, the magic of the family black sheep coming out and dealing with unsupportive family, the bisexual to lesbian pipeline, finally seeing in color for the first time, and not betraying yourself for the benefit of anyone else and anyone else's values. Um... We talk a lot about queerness in this conversation, and I think the conversation is definitely super helpful for other people who are queer, and also I think the lessons and the things Shari talks about really apply to anyone who is trying to become and embody more of their real self, their authentic self, the self that maybe your family doesn't want you to be, um, the self that maybe you're afraid of becoming, but the self that you really are. Um, so I hope you enjoy this conversation. Just a reminder before we get into it that I have two things that are available for you should you want them. The Religious Trauma Workbook is available at the link in the description. It's a 110-page digital workbook full of prompts, reflections, meditations, somatic exercises, and rituals to help you deprogram and heal and reclaim for people who are coming from a dogmatic or fundamentalist religious background. And I also have a gathering on Zoom coming up at the end of the month breathwork for ex-religious and deconstructing folks which is a breathwork class intended to support people who have been impacted by dogmatic religion um on a journey of healing and returning to themselves so it's a really lovely gathering links to both those things are in the description and that's all i have for you i'm so excited to share this conversation with shari with you um so let's get into it 
since you've been on the show before, I thought maybe we could start by talking a little bit about your journey over the pandemic and the past year or two, which I know has been a wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) And I know you also have like a whole podcast episode about this on your own show. So, you know, don't feel like you have to like get into like every single detail or anything, but anything you want to share about what's been going on for you over pandemic time, I'd love to hear. For sure. I feel like I've lived like 20 lives (laughs) in the past two years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like when I think back to just everything that I've done and felt and had to go through in 2020 and 2021, like I kind of have this out of body experience of like, did I really do all of that? Like, did I actually survive all of those things? And like, I'm still here standing and like mostly being a functional human because when I think of it objectively, I'm like, there's no way. But then I'm like, nope, you you did all the things. So to give some background, uh, basically pandemic hits in spring of 2020. And it was around that time that I was really starting to more seriously question my sexuality and Uh, I had come out as bisexual a couple of years prior, but I was starting to wonder if I was gay. And I, in my relationship, I was previously married. We had reached a point after I came out as bisexual where we had talked about potentially opening the relationship because I was really having this strong feeling that if I didn't get to have experiences with women dating, sexual and otherwise, that like I would not be living my life fully because I felt like I had gotten married without knowing this big piece of information about me. Like when I got married, I thought it was straight. So that was just this huge whirlwind that was swirling around pre-pandemic and pandemic hits. So we don't actually open the relationship. And I like to say that one of the big catalysts for me is that I read Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, which in that book, Glennon describes how, you know, she was previously married to a man and then she met the amazing Abby Wambach, their relationship starts off and is really beautiful and she details that and I remember like listening to this book in the shower because of a shower speaker and just like feeling devastated and being like I want that but knowing that it couldn't reconcile like with the life that I had like I just got this deep gut sense that I was meant to be with a woman as my long-term partner and not with a man and that was a very confusing feeling for me and I knew that to follow on that would mean to change my entire life. It would mean to end my marriage uh, to this person that I really cared about and had been with for a long time. It would mean that, you know, my financial situation, my housing situation, like all of these things were going to have to change. And that was terrifying because it was all on... I don't want to say a whim, but like this feeling that I had where I couldn't confirm it. I had no idea if I was right, but I had this sense that I was. And ultimately, I decided that I needed to end my marriage and go pursue this and find out if this was my truth because I would otherwise spend the rest of my life regretting it. And I would feel like I had settled in a way because I had this sense all the time of like, is there something else out there? Is this all that there is for me? And I knew that I had the agency 
to go find out, right? Like I thankfully was in a situation where I could leave, I felt safe to leave and overall would receive support from the people in my life to do so because sometimes we get stuck in situations that aren't so easy to get out of. And I was like, okay, we're going to do this thing. And it is the hardest thing that I have ever done to ask for that divorce, to, you know, break the heart of this person that I really cared about. And then all of the aftermath that followed with changing a lot of stuff that was going on in my business and needing to like figure out a new housing situation and divorce logistics, which even as someone who's a former lawyer who was able to navigate it without hiring an attorney, you know, it's just an exhausting thing to have to separate out all of your stuff, figure out the financials. Like that's always going to make tempers flare in a relationship, especially one that's ending, dealing with family and telling people and the questions. I mean, I was in a very low place, probably the lowest place that I've ever been. And of course, this is all happening while the pandemic is still continuing to rage on. So I mostly just had a lot of time by myself at my house uh, to like journal and cry and go to lots of therapy and work my way through all of this and the grief. I think grief was the most overwhelming feeling that I had, not only grieving this relationship that was ending, but also grieving for the part of me that didn't know something really important about myself and grieving the world that I grew up in that had allowed these things to be concealed. And there was also a lot of anger with that, a lot of sadness. I mean, you and I were just talking before we started recording of kind of just going through all of the gamut of emotions this year. And that's what it felt like. So at this time, you know, got divorced last spring, uh, living in my own place. My ex is in his own place. We share custody of our pups. We're still on good terms. I currently have a girlfriend and she's fucking fantastic. And things are finally looking up. Like I can tell you that when I first asked for a divorce, I had this feeling of like, will I ever feel joy again? Which is really sad thing to admit, but that's how bad it was at that time. And so now to be on the other side, to be able to feel that joy and lightness and all of these things that I was searching for is amazing. But to get here was just like a slow trudge through hell, if I'm being completely (laughs) honest. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I wish that we were talking about what was going on for us while it was happening, because I didn't realize until later that we were experiencing a lot of the same like processing and feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wasn't married, but I went through the end of a relationship and falling in love and moving out and like all of these things. And I didn't realize that untamed was also part of (laughs) what prompted that for you because it was for me also. I remember. Wait, was it really? Oh my God. I didn't know that. (laughs) I was sitting on my rooftop at an old apartment reading Untamed for the first time. I think it was like June maybe of the pandemic and I was sobbing and this book was like really hitting me and I felt so much like my relationship has to end. It's not going to work. I want what Glennon has. And I know that it's true. Like I know that that's like the most beautiful and true thing for me, which she talks about in the book. And then I didn't actually end my relationship for eight more months maybe, but I knew since from reading that book and my experience with that book, I knew it was coming. 
um, I was just scared and working through a lot of that stuff, like the slow trudge through hell. <laughs> <laughs> it takes it takes as long as it takes. You know, I think yeah. sometimes we can get on the other side of things and be like, why did I stay as long as I did? Why couldn't I do it? But it really takes a lot of internal work to get to the point where you're ready to make that next step because mm-hmm. of all the hurdles and all of the risk and all the things that you're thinking about and assessing when you're trying to get there. Like these huge life changes are not easy to no. go through at all. So for anyone listening who's like, how could you, you know, stay that much longer? It's like, cause there's so much questioning and doubt to get to a point of trusting yourself enough to be like, okay, this is my truth and I have to act on it. Yeah. And this is so much of what I want to talk to you about. Like this idea of feeling the fear and finding the courage to do the thing anyways. How do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> what an excellent question you ask, Aaron. <laughs> Oh my goodness, so many pieces to this. So uh, I coach self-trust. This is uh, a change from when I was last on your podcast Mm -hmm. when I was more squarely in the like weight-inclusive wellness coaching space. And uh, through the catalyst really of my own divorce and all the changes in my life, I realized that self-trust was really the thread that was running through everything I'd done in my career up to that point. And because of my own unique journey, I was uniquely positioned to help other people and guide them as they were trying to figure it out for themselves. And in my work, I have this pillars of self-trust framework that I like to use with my clients to kind of help them conceptualize how we get to this point of courage. And those pillars are consciousness practices, care practices, and courage practices. And the consciousness practices is exactly what it sounds like. It's that awareness piece. It's you and me reading Untamed and the thing clicking in our brain of, oh, this is a very important piece of information for me to have in this moment. And that's just the first step because we get that information and we still have to process and figure out what to do with it and see if we believe it. Like everyone has to go through their own stages Mm -hmm. to really listen to that. And we're also taught that our internal knowing and voice can't be trusted. Just in general, in society, uh, we get that messaging all the time, especially if we are women or marginalized people. And so there are these self-doubts that are popping up of like, is this true? And then also going through the lens of what will other people think is (laughs) always popping up, right? If I do this, what will the reaction be? How will people treat me? Uh, What happens to other people? Which again, unfortunately, we're so often taught to put everyone else before ourselves. And so those are kind of the ghost gremlins that are popping up in our brains when we're in this consciousness part. But without the awareness, we can't do anything. And so even if it feels like we're stuck in that place for a long time, there is active work that is happening. It's when we're burying the stuff deep down, which I did for years, somewhat Mm -hmm. subconsciously for a lot of it, like these feelings would pop up, but I didn't have the tools to interpret what they meant. I didn't know what my body was saying to me. So it was easier to just put those back away figure it out some other day. And so I didn't have that awareness. So when you get that awareness, that's like the biggest thing to start with. And then to move to a place where you can actually build that courage, you have to build trust 
between you and your body. And this is where the care practices aspect comes in. This is all the ways that we treat ourselves with self-compassion and with grace, the ways that we nourish our bodies, whether that's through food or through exercise or social time or making sure that we're getting enough rest, like these things that tend to go by the wayside because when we are not caring for ourselves, it gets easy to ignore that voice. This is when we can bury it very easily. If we just busy ourselves in work, which I've certainly done as a coping mechanism many times over the course of the pandemic and my divorce, it's a numbing thing. It keeps us from being able to feel. And when we're taking care of our bodies, we're better able to feel. We're really creating that rapport between our bodies and understanding the language and what's happening. And that's when we're able to say, okay, I have the energy. I have the trust. I've taken care of my body and we have this great relationship. And now we can step forward into the courage practices, into the things that are hard, but I know are going to make my life better because it's a risk assessment essentially with courage practices. People think that to have courage means that you don't feel any fear anymore, that you've somehow gotten over all of your fears, you're not scared, and you're just like valiantly going forward to tackle whatever's in front of you. And that could not be further from the truth, because the definition of courage is to have fear and to do it anyway. It's to jump off the freaking mountain into midair, free fall, and hope that you land on your feet because you can't know what the outcome is going to be. And I think this is why courage is really challenging for people because we like control. We want to know exactly where we're going to end up, how it's going to go, prepare for every scenario. And there's so many things in our lives that we just can't know how it's going to turn out. And we have to trust. We have to trust that there's a reason that we're making the decision that we are and that it will turn out some way. And however it turns out, we're going to be able to handle it. And that was the thing for me, was reminding myself like, yeah, maybe this won't go the way that I think it's going to go. Maybe it turns out that I'm wrong. And I brought this up to my therapist about like, what if I'm wrong? And she's like, what if you are? She's like, at least you'll know. Then you'll know that this is the answer that you've been seeking. And for me, it was better to know and find out and get those answers than it was to stay in a situation where I would always be questioning. And I know that it is just so challenging to do this because I've been there not only with my divorce and coming out, but also with career changes and various other things in my life. And I know that the more I've been able to tap into my own values and needs, that the better I can make those tough choices when the time comes, because I'm really rooted in who I am and what I want to do with my life. And where people can struggle with this is if they don't know that, because a lot of us, we don't really know what our values are or what it is that we're after or what's important to us because again we've been told that we want to put other people before us so we haven't actually explored that what is that process of understanding what your values are been like for you it has been a journey (laughs) (laughs) as all things are (laughs) as all things are I think what's kind of been interesting to me though is that Values can certainly change over the course of our lives, and they often do, and they can also be sharpened depending on what's happening with you. Mm -hmm. But what I've noticed is that 
I've actually had like very strong core values from a young age and different things have maybe taken me away from them or confused me about them. But if I go back to how I was growing up, like I was always branded the black sheep in my family growing up. And for me, a black sheep is the person who's willing to say the stuff that other people aren't willing to say. It's the person who is willing to push back on the cycles of trauma and abuse that are happening in families. And they get branded that way because it's outside the status quo. And everyone else in the family is like, no, no, no. We got to keep up appearances. Things need to look and be a certain way. And they feel threatened by this person's presence. And my Parents branded me as the family black sheep when I was really young. I was always pushing back against what I felt was wrong and um, like challenging them in ways that they didn't like. So we fought all the time. And in their minds, it was, oh, you know, you're a bad kid. You're doing these different things. And now I can look back and be like, no, I just had an inherent sense of what was important to me in the world and how I deserve to be treated even from a young age. And I pushed back when I felt like other people weren't able to meet that standard. And that has continued through to now as an adult, like I have this deep inherent sense of uh, justice and being able to see what is unjust in the world. I always had a lot of empathy and feelings that I was told, you know, you're being too sensitive, too emotional, like put all of that away. We need to be strong, Ugh, be strong. I put this in quotes because uh, that's the furthest thing from strength that I can think of is pretending to be something that you're not. So I think some people can kind of look back to childhood and what some of the values were there or the things that were sticking points for them as a starting place of figuring out, uh, does that still resonate today? Is this who I am right now and what is still a guiding force for me? And uh, additionally, for me as a kid, like I always had this like unique sense of who I was too. Like I was kind of quirky. Like, I mean, I was queer. I was, <laughs> I was queer all, all along. I just didn't know it. But, uh, you know, and that manifested in different ways growing up. And I would come up against society's expectations, whether that was how I was supposed to dress or talk or act around other people. And those would be the things that would dim that. So I think asking yourself, like, if there weren't all of these shoulds of what you think you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to act, mm -hmm. if people, uh, if you knew people weren't going to judge you or do anything, like, who would you be then? How would you act? What would you be doing with your life? What would you be uh, wearing and eating and participating in? Because that's just like a really good sense of what's actually important to you and what your values are uh, once they're not being overshadowed by all of these other things. Mm -hmm. That question also makes me think of another question, which I feel like was important to me in my own processing around all queerness and all of it was like, if I knew that I would be okay, what would I want to do? What would be most important Ooh. to me? Because it is that idea, like you talked about of like, we don't know if we're going to be okay. It is uncertain. And like building that trust that like, I actually can handle whatever happens. So asking myself, like, if I knew I'd be okay, what would I do? Um, was really helpful. Like this conversation about values is bringing me to something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, I think you know, you've heard me talk about how I came out to my parents this summer and it's 
you know, <laughs> been a whole terrible thing. Um, but something I've been thinking about as I've been told that I like betrayed the family values are these questions around <laughs> values and being like, oh, like you're upset because I betrayed your values, but I didn't betray my own values. So I don't actually have a problem because those are the values that are important to me to live by. Like I'm not taking on your values anymore. Um, so I wanted to ask you about like coming out and dealing with unsupportive family and what that maybe has been like for you or thoughts you have around that. Um, Cause yeah, it's really hard and goes along with that whole like black sheep idea too, which I'm definitely been branded as in my family now if I wasn't already. <laughs> it's so hard. And I think with my family in particular, like anytime I've done something big in my life, like my parents have found a way to be disappointed in that choice for the most part. So like in a way, I'm used to doing things that disappoint them. And this was no different, I think. Like, so I came out to my parents as bisexual, uh, like six months maybe after I'd come out to like my close friends and my partner at the time. And I did it through email because I didn't want to see their faces and like I wanted to let them have their reaction and my mom like immediately wrote back um and I'm sure it was like a frenzied fury like without really reading and processing and she was like why does it matter if you are bisexual if you have committed to be with a man for the rest of your life and she couldn't see what was the point of it all and I wrote back, gave her some reasons of why there was a point and it was important to me. And then my dad kind of responded and he said something along the lines of like, it would be great if we lived in a world where people didn't have to come out, but that's not the world that we live in. You know, we love and accept you no matter what. So my dad handled it better than my mom. That said, over the next couple of years, they never again mentioned it to me. It wasn't a topic that came up, you know, it wasn't truly acknowledged. And I had these fears when I came out as gay about telling them because I think for them, my queerness when I was bisexual and married was a hypothetical, right? Like they could accept it because they didn't have to actually see it in front of them and deal with it and know what that meant, right? They could keep it from people in their lives because no one would know because I was married to a man. And I, you know, when I told my parents I was getting divorced, I wasn't yet claiming the labels gay and lesbian as I am now, but I told them I'm no longer identifying as bisexual. The reason we're getting divorced is because our sexual identities do not match up. And that's the end of this relationship. And my parents didn't handle my divorce well at all. They barely talked to me for the last year uh, since I had decided to get divorced. Didn't check in with me, like, how are you doing? Do you need anything? And I've talked to them a little bit recently and kind of their reasoning is, oh, well, we thought since you were the one who asked for the divorce, like you were happy and you know everything was great. And I was like, well, this shows how little that you actually know me <laughs> as your daughter. And also, why would you assume you could have asked, and then I could confirm for you one way or the other. So all of that was very painful. And then to get to this point now where, again, I came out to them, and I've used the words gay around them, and they still have not acknowledged that aspect of me, like 
to my face. Not that I've been seeing them much because the pandemic, but or even on the phone or anything like that. And so we're in this like weird impasse space where I'm like, they know that I'm gay. They've seen the photos of me and my girlfriend that I've posted. Um, they've only just told their families that I'm queer, like their extended families. And that's a whole separate thing because poor terminology was used in telling their families where essentially they chalked it up to, um, I had decided to be gay and date women at 31. You know, it was this very dismissive, like, oh, silly shore, making silly choices again kind of thing. And that was so hurtful to me because I was like, if you would just ask me about this, if you would talk to me about this, I could explain to you like my sexuality and like how I came to this point instead of having all these assumptions that are made. So it's been really tough to not have parents who seem to want to know who support anything about what I'm doing or my relationship. And, you know, for anyone out there who does have those parents and you're queer, like, I'm so happy for you because I think that um, it can make such a difference with something that's already so hard to do. You know, all the things that I went through and to then have my parents like not understand it and not care to understand it adds to that pain. And, you know, I have siblings, my sister and I are really close and she's super accepting of me. I have fantastic like chosen family and friends who have all been so supportive of me through all of this. And I'm very grateful for that, that I have those relationships. But you know, as well as I, we're biologically programmed to have and seek connection and love from our parents. And for me, I've always had this sense that in order for my parents to truly love and accept me, I would need to be a different, smaller, more tamed version of myself. And at this point in my life, I'm almost 32, I've been through a lot of stuff. I'm not willing to be that person for them, for the sake of our relationship. And that's a tough place to find yourself in. But this is, again, about not betraying me. Because for years, I would go back and forth to betray myself for their benefit, for the benefit of their religion and their values. And like you said, that is not a good place for me to be. That's betraying my own self and my own body and what I need to be happy in my life. And getting to a place where I was no longer willing to do that wasn't easy, but I feel so much freer, even though there is a lot of pain with my family and saying, at the end of the day, I'm gonna choose myself. They can either come along with that, they can accept that and come with me, or they can't. And letting go of realizing that it's not my fault, that they are the way they are and they've chosen the values that they have. And yes, it sucks that we're in two different places, but I don't have control over other people. All any of us can do is live our truth and let people react how they're going to react because we can't control people's reactions. And it's one of the hardest lessons to learn, but it's one of the ones that will release so much suffering in your life. It's so hard to learn, but that's so true. And I love what you said about choosing to not betray yourself anymore for them. And that feels really resonant for my experience too. I feel like coming out to my parents was a big act of bravery for me. And I was really scared and I also kind of knew how it was going to go, um, but it was like a very conscious choice that I made to like accept the consequences so that I could 
live authentically and not continue to betray myself and abandon myself for their comfort, for them to like have this illusion of safety around me and around my life. And I was like, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. I'm old. I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) I don't care enough to like, to try and keep doing that. It's not worth it. It's like, it costs too much. Um, yeah, it costs too much. You get to this point where you're like, I am out of fucks to give about this. Uh, that's been the yeah. beauty of my 30s in general is I'm like, oh, I spent so much of my 20s caring what other people thought, trying to conform to other people's ideas of who I needed to be and what I needed to do. And I would break out of it every time, kind of get sucked back in and then break out. And I feel like the running thing of my 30s has been I'm not doing that anymore. Yes. Uh, I, I simply don't have the energy, especially in a pandemic and going through the things that I've been through now that were so hard. Like, I think one of the biggest things that my divorce and that whole experience taught me is that time is our most precious commodity mm-hmm. and we can't get back what is already gone with time. And we don't know how much we're going to have. One of the great uncontrollable mysteries of our lives is we don't know how long we're going to get to live. And I think going through all of that really made me see that I don't have any time to waste on not being the truest version of me. Not Mm -hmm. anymore, because I've wasted enough time. And I don't blame myself for having wasted that time because that is the society we live in. That's how I was raised. And again, I didn't have the tools and skills that I have now. But now that I have them, you could not pry them out of my cold dead hands. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm like, I have them. I'm going to use them. And I will not be somebody else to make someone else happy. And, you know, at this point in my life, I'm like, if you don't like it, you don't like it. And at one point that would have crushed me. I wanted everyone to like me. I couldn't stand it when people didn't like me. Or if they didn't, it would kind of be this outsized reaction of like, well, fuck you, you know? And now I'm in this much more balanced place of like, you know, if you don't like me, you don't like me. If we have different values, we have different values. Like I'm not going to spend any more time wasted on that. And I hope that you don't either. We can just go in different directions wherever we need to go. And I can't change other people. I can only focus on myself. I think people are afraid of that because it feels selfish. Mm -hmm. It feels like, uh, but you know, I do have to care about other people in order to be a good daughter or in order to be a good mother, a good friend. And yes, like we want to be good to the people in our lives, but not at the expense of our own well-being. Yeah. That makes me think so much of like the clean pain and dirty pain that Resna Menakeem talks about in my grandmother's hands. And to me, it mm-hmm. I feel like I've learned so much in this past year that like the dirty pain is, I mean, there are so many different expressions that it shows up as, but like that pain that you experience when you're making yourself small for somebody else, when you're not aligning with your values, when you're abandoning yourself for somebody else, it's like that pain will never go away until you choose differently. And like clean mm-hmm. pain, is that pain of like choosing to live authentically and not abandon yourself. And that can be really painful too. You lose people like grief can come up so much can happen around that too, but it's like pain that is taking you where you want to go and into the self that you are instead of away from the self that you are. And that's like such a big distinction. Yes. It's that forward progress piece. Mm -hmm. And this loops back into courage too. When we are 
making decisions courageously, it's with the hope that we're heading in the direction that we want to go in. And we may not Mm -hmm. know how we're going to get there or what it's going to feel like or what the end result is. But if we can at least take a step in that direction that feels most true to us, then we know that the decisions that we're making are the best we can in that moment. And of course, we Mm -hmm. might get information later and be like, oh, I would have done that differently or uh, go on a different path. And that's fine. We learn as we get that information. Mm -hmm. But staying where you are out of fear is like you said, it's it's a pain unlike any other, and it's not a solvable pain. And you can push it down, but it will keep coming up over and over, and your body is not going to let you live that way in a, in a comfortable, like joyful way for long at all. Because that's what happened to me is my body knew before I did that I needed to not be in this relationship, that I was queer, and that my life needed to look different than it was. And over time... <laughs> it became such a strong, overwhelming feeling. It was more painful to stay than it was to leave, even though it was so painful to leave. Like I could not settle into that like dull pain constantly for the rest of my life. Better to take the sharp initial pain to go in the direction that felt best for me. Mm -hmm. It's worth it every time I think. And I think that the more that I've made those decisions and felt that pain and moved through it and experienced what I wanted to experience from it, I'm like building this like somatic memory of like, oh, right. Like, yeah, this is the thing. It's okay to do this. Like, this is the pain that I want to have. And that's how we build Mm self-trust as people is showing up for ourselves again and again and again so that that trust is there. We know that we can count on ourselves and the resilience of our bodies. And I hate that any of us have to be resilient. I hate that we live in a world where we have to deal with this stuff. I don't want any of us to have to be strong and resilient because of shit like this. But we can't change the world that we're in. And that resilience can be a really beautiful thing because it feeds into trusting ourselves. And, you know, if you have this big decision that you want to make and you can't quite get there, you can show up for yourself in smaller ways first. And these things I'm talking about with the consciousness Mm -hmm. practices and the care practices, just like showing up for your body, making little decisions, trusting yourself because because that will build over time to then be able to make these bigger decisions. And like you said, now having done it, having survived, I trust myself more going into the future. Like I said, I have a girlfriend right now and she's wonderful. And the thought of our relationship ending like terrifies me uh, after everything that I have already gone through with that. And I remind myself like nothing good comes without risk. Mm-hmm. And I have been through the worst and I survived it. And so whatever happens here, I will survive it and I will find joy and lightness again. And that's what keeps me going and being able to look at those fears and say, I see you fears and I'm going to keep moving in this direction. Yeah. I've been leaning on this quote constantly, sharing it constantly (laughs) over this year. But the idea that like you're only as alive as you are open to being annihilated and like Ooh, oh my God. (laughs) In the heart. It's so true. It's like, and I want to be alive. So like, absolutely. My partner could completely destroy me. Like I love them so much. They could completely annihilate me, but that's like a risk that I'm willing to take. Like 
what we have and like the aliveness of my life right now is like, it's all worth it. And I'm sure I'll be annihilated many, many, many more times before I die, but mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't do it a different way. <laughs> that is living, that is living open. Is it not? Yeah. <laughs> that is it. That is it. <laughs> I wanted to also talk to you a little bit about the bisexual to lesbian pipeline Um, (laughs) since we both written the pipeline to its completion. (laughs) Yes, we did. Um, I would love to hear any thoughts you have about that. And like, um, I don't know. I feel like there's so much around that. That's about like processing compulsory heterosexuality and yeah, learning to be honest with ourselves and all of that. So Mm -hmm. I'm just curious what any thoughts you want to share about that. For sure. And I always start answers to this question with the caveat that, hey, bisexual people, I love you. I see you. You are fantastic. Uh, Anybody out there who has this idea that bisexuality is always or most of the time a stop on the way to someone figuring out they're gay. That's not true. The vast majority of the LGBTQIA plus community is bisexual. Bisexuals are awesome. So my best friends are bisexual. So I just want to put that out there first for people that we're not doing any biphobic shit in this conversation. No, we love bisexuals. We love you bisexuals. You sit weird and it's amazing. (laughs) It is incredible. We love that about you so much. (laughs) So much. But for me, uh, my journey was that bisexuality was the catalyst for figuring out that actually I wasn't bisexual, I was only into women. And I think the way that it happened in my brain and in my body was that when I determined that I could be attracted to women, then I was like, oh, well, I'm with a man. I've only been with men. I now feel that, oh, I do feel attraction to women, bisexual, right? We're going to slap that label on there. That feels good. And at the time, I really thought nothing was going to change in my life. Like I came out to my then husband and my friends and I was like, oh, yeah, like this doesn't change our relationship. This changes nothing. And poor, sweet, naive little Shore, she didn't know. She didn't know. Like I said that with full belief in my heart that that was true. But what I didn't know was that I've sort of opened this Pandora's box in my body because I had this one taste of this thing of, okay, I can be attracted to women. And then when I gave myself that permission to actually feel that and experience that, it was like a tidal wave inside of me of, you know, those these different feelings and starting to question and be like, wait a minute, could this be the one thing that I want? Have I had a completely different sense of my sexual orientation for a long time than I thought? And of course, learning about compulsory heterosexuality, I think, is helpful. Um, People a lot of times talk about like the lesbian master doc (laughs) thing. I've read it. Some of the things resonated. I don't think that stuff is true across the board for everybody. Like we're all so unique and we have different experiences. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think that in a world where women are taught that to have the attraction of men is a way to get power, to get ahead, to get love and acceptance, that is an extremely strong motivator. And I didn't grow up 
ever being told it was okay to be gay. That was, (laughs) it was explicitly not okay to be gay, not only as part of the religion I grew up in, but also within my own household where my mom said to us growing up, if any of you were gay, I'd kick you out of the house. And she'd be like, I don't care if other people are gay, but if my children are gay, there's this. So any chance that I would have had to figure that out was pretty much squashed. Also because at that time when I was, you know, in high school and starting to experience things sexually, there weren't really many bisexual role models. There weren't a lot of gay role models. Like I didn't have access to the very limited media that would have presented that at that time. Most of the things at that time were about how like being gay is awful, right? People would use the F slur all around school constantly uh, as a joke. My brothers would say gay as a joke to like things that they thought was funny. Like it was a punchline. So All of that stuff, I think, just served to make me think that, oh, well, I've, you know, been with boys at the time and then men, like, it's fine. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I just kind of got myself into this, like, the uh, should life trajectory of Mm -hmm. I should do this. My goal is to find a man who's great by objective standards to move in with him, get engaged, get married, get the house, like all these little steps. And I just didn't ever think that there was another option. And this is why I always say to parents, like if you teach your kids really young that like all the options are open to them, that, you know, they can be with anybody of any gender and they can love anybody of any gender and they can be any gender, like kids will be able to tap into that and have the option to figure out who they are. I was given one choice. So of course I decided that I was straight because nothing else was an option in my life. I didn't even know that was a possibility for me or if I was having those feelings, which I, you know, I can look back and see like the breadcrumbs of those feelings. I I didn't know how to interpret them at the time or what I would even do with that information. And that's why coming out as bisexual as I started to figure that out was such an important moment for me because it was that permission I'd never had to feel that. And once I felt it, I realized, oh, the way that I feel about women is fundamentally different from the way that I feel about men. And when I look at my relationships with men, really, they've been these very strong friendships and partnerships. But Was the romantic attraction really there? Was the sexual attraction really there? Uh, I felt no or to a much lesser extent. And again, now being with a woman and having a girlfriend, I can tell you absolutely not. It's like night and day different. The way I've described this to people in my life is it's like living in black and white and having people tell you all these things about the world, but they're seeing in color. And so you're trying to match your experiences to theirs, even though it's not quite Mm -hmm. the same. And I would rationalize and be like, well, you know, they're describing love as being like this, but well, I've been with my partner for a long time. And so I'm sure that, you know, it has just faded or it'd be like, there's different kinds of love. You know, this is just like a more comfortable, like friendly love. Not all love has to be this way. And then you come out on the other side of it, suddenly the world is in these rainbow colors that everyone else was seeing. And it's like, everything makes sense. And you're like, oh, fuck, I was missing out on all of this all 
this time because I thought the world was black and white, but actually it's in color because I had the wrong lenses on, right? I needed to get a new pair of glasses to be able to see what's out in front of me. And turns out it's amazing. But you don't know that rainbow exists. So you just try to fit your experiences in with what other people are telling you. And that makes me so sad now to think that anybody has to have that experience and grow up that way. But I do think it helps explain like how someone can go from being straight to bisexual to gay in a matter of years because you're slowly finding the pieces of those glasses and putting them together and putting them on. And then there's your epiphany. But to get there is really hard. Oh, my God. Nothing resonates more. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, I was having this conversation with my friend this year of like, I finally get it. Like, I get why people want to get married. I get why people are so obsessed with being in love. And I'm like, being in love is so good. But it's like everybody else already knew that. I just figured it out this year because I'm gay. This is the queer second adolescence. This is why people always say this when folks don't figure out they're queer until later is we really do have this like childlike um, wonder at the world because we're learning to see it in a totally new way. And I feel the same way as you. It's like, you know, all these songs where people would talk about different things like having sex all night long and whatever. I'd be like, who does that? Whatever. And I'm like, oh. Okay, I I understand. And um, I like to use this example because I think it's kind of a silly one. But you know, the phrase like weak at the knees. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was just like a very hyperbole kind of phrase. Like I was like, okay, like I don't I guess they're describing like someone makes them feel very strongly. And it's like, my girlfriend can like send a text or I can think of a memory with her whatever. And it's like you get that lightning bolt through your body. And I was like, Oh, this this is uh-huh. what that expression <laughs> means. I get it now. <laughs> That's so real. Or like all those songs are like people talk about like gazing into their partner's eyes. And now I'm like, oh my God, like I really do just like want to look into my partner's eyes. I want to gaze for hours. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I I truly thought at one point that I was like, oh, you know, physical touch is just like my lowest love language. I'm I'm just not someone who wants to hold hands or cuddle. And I'm like, now if my girlfriend is within 100 feet of me, I'm like, you need to be right next to me. I need to be touching you at all times. Like, I want to be cuddled. Like, uh-huh. it's just a totally, a totally different thing. <laughs> me and my partner have a bedtime routine, which is three M's, which is meds, meditating and mushing. And mushing is like an Cute. hour of cuddling before bed. <laughs> Adorable. Because it's required. <laughs> it is required. It's required. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have one more question for you, which is if there's anyone listening who's kind of facing down a scary decision or starting to realize that they want to do a big scary thing that's going to require a lot of bravery for them, like, is there anything else that you want to leave them with or offer to them? Hmm. I think the best thing that I can offer is that the answers that you're seeking are not outside of yourself. You can do all the research that you want. You can ask a million friends. You can go to tons of therapy sessions, and those things may help. But at the end of the day, the answer is inside of you. And if you can learn to listen to the language of your body and what it's trying to tell you, you'll hear it. And a lot of times we hear it and we're in denial because it's not the answer that we want. (laughs) And that is scary. 
But again, your body will keep telling you until you realize, oh, there's a reason that my body thinks that this is the answer. And so finding time to be with yourself and to ask yourself these hard questions, to ask the Glennon Doyle question mm-hmm. of imagining like what is the like truest, most beautiful thing that I can imagine. It's a very powerful question. There's a reason that it set both you and I on like a tailspin <laughs> in our lives is because, yeah, because we can envision it. Almost always we can envision what would be better, where we want to go. It's just we're afraid to actually do it. And I think if you can figure out what feels best, where you want to go, then you fill in the rest and you just do it one step at a time. You don't Mm -hmm. have to do everything at once. You can just figure out what's the next step I need to take to get me closer to that true, beautiful place that I'm envisioning. And you just keep going one step at a time. And it gets easier as you build up your own self-trust and you keep showing up for yourself. One step at a time feels so true and so much less overwhelming than having to figure out every single piece of how everything is going to happen if you do this thing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Will you tell everyone where people can find you and how they can work with you um, coming up soon? Absolutely. So uh, my website is shoredavity.com. I know you'll have that in the show notes for people who are like, how the hell do you spell that? (laughs) I got you. Everything's there. I'm Shore Davidi on social media. I spend most of my time on Instagram and very soon I'm going to be building up my TikTok quite a bit. So if you're a TikTok person, definitely go follow me there because I'm finally getting my TikTok and Reels game going now that I'm more settled into my house and my life. So look forward to that. The two different ways that people can work with me is that I do one-on-one coaching and I have limited spots available for that all throughout the year. I do a six-month container and we just work like hell on your self-trust and building up these skills so that you can make these hard decisions. And the other way to work with me is that I have a membership program that's called Follow Your Arrow. It is a one-year membership program. The next cohort is going to kick off in January of 2022, and then there will be another one in June of 2022. So look for all the announcements about that coming up with my stuff. If you already know you're interested, if you go to my website and you go to shoridavity.com forward slash follow dash your dash arrow, you can actually get on the interest list for that. So you'll be the first to know when I am opening the doors to that. So you can get all the exciting bonuses, which will include um, some free coaching from me, which you know you want to get in on uh, to get into the program early. So that's going to be opening up officially in November for more people to be joining. And I'm really excited. It's been so fun to facilitate it this past year because there's an educational component, there's the group coaching. And I think that group work is really powerful with this kind of stuff because it helps you see that you're not alone and it really helps to dissipate a lot of the shame that people are feeling and to get ideas from everybody. Like I learn as much in my group work as the people who are paying me to be in the group work do because in community, we can accomplish so much and we can really unite towards common goals. So super fun for me. That's the main stuff. And oh, my podcast, of course, Mm -hmm. I have a podcast too. It's called Conjuring Up Courage. There's information on my website about that. It's on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, all of the places that you can think. And I release episodes every other week on Tuesdays. And the podcast is amazing. Follow Your Arrow is amazing. You definitely want to get in on all the things. Um, you can join me. Yeah, join Shore. You can check out the links in the description. Um, thank you so, so much for being here, coming back on the show, a two-time guest. <laughs> I feel so special to get to be a two-time guest. <laughs> you are so Thank special. you so much for having me back. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.